It was the summer of 1995. I was looking forward to graduating from high school. TLC tried to warn us about chasing waterfalls. Walt Disney Corp. merged with ABC. MTV unleashed road rules upon us. And NBC ruled the airwaves with this unbeatable block of must-see television on Thursday nights with friends, Seinfeld, and ER. Meanwhile, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Kevin Costner is putting the final touches on a box office bomb of mass destruction Lumbering out of the Pacific Rim, the $175 million movie Waterworld, a post-apocalyptic action film directed by Kevin Reynolds and written by Peter Rader and David Tui, among others, arrived on U.S. shores on July 28th and managed to make just $88 million of that back in the U.S. And although it eventually became profitable with overseas sales, broadcast rights, and home video releases, the troubled production continued Costner's box office decline that began with Wyatt Earp just a year before, his days as a sought-after leading man would come to an end in 1997. Jim, we come here today, 25 years later, after its debut, to pass ultimate judgment on this water world. What say you? I've passed judgment on Waterworld and it has been found wanting. Uh, <laughs> Waterworld is not a good movie. Waterworld is a movie that is conflicted with itself, uh, that has zero concern for how any of it ever came about to be both in the production side and the story side. Uh, it It's somehow a delightfully bad movie though. I, that's what I thought. Cause I remember I was really pumped for this movie. I was big into science fiction, action adventure. Uh, Kevin Costner leading up to this had made some really good movies. I really mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and kind of like a trashy, fun, lush box, big box office way. Um, and I, you know, and and I'd also seen uh, Dances with Wolves. Um, you know, my mom liked it. My dad was excited about it. We go to a drive in theater in, in the summer of 95 and see this thing on opening night. And I remember like halfway through the second act being like this is boring and why is this guy such an asshole like i i i you know so to be fair, I, that I didn't second have... act is the weakest part of the movie it is really bad but like watching it again with adult i think the first act is pretty good uh-huh. the third act is pretty entertaining for an adventure romp it's just the second act fails utterly to get you to care about any of these characters. They're all actively unlikable. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember Kevin Costner's uh, fish man being a big asshole and hard to relate with, but like, I didn't think that the girl or the, the woman of the story, um, Helen or Enola was, I thought they were like, I kind of was on team Costner, throw these guys over overboard. <laughs> you don't need this shit as a, a Mariner drifter. Like, uh, these people don't give a shit about your personal property. They have inflated sense of their self-worth. Uh, like, yeah, get them out of here. Get them out of here. Um, it, it was tough. It was tough. But it has a lot of really big ideas, a lot does. of entertaining action, mm-hmm. um, a memorable villain, and some of the re- yeah. really cool set and costume design and some really cool world building. But boy, oh, yeah. oh boy, as as I feel like this is something we've been really beat into our heads the last few weeks. You know, set setting a plot is not nearly as important as characters, and the characters just completely fall flat like a like a underbaked souffle or overbaked souffle. And as a result, yeah. as spectacular as the third act is, you just really don't give a shit. And I think that's um, why I remember this movie fondly and why I view it, you know, as a delightfully bad movie because I was 13 when this movie dropped and I was super excited to see it. It looked like the, the previews made it look much more exciting. Um, oh, sure. I, I think then it turned out to be, and I, I don't know if that's like partially runtime. Maybe they could have cut down a little bit more um, in that, in that middle section. Uh, but I remember being super excited to see it. And when I finally saw it, I remember enjoying the sillier parts of it and enjoying the action and not thinking too much about the characters because I was a kid, you know? Um, yeah, that yeah. stuff didn't bother me. Nowadays, I look at this movie and I go, oh, God, this is actually kind of a piece of shit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's like partially ruined by Dennis Hopper, which... Wow. You know, th- this is a performance from Dennis Hopper and, and this is kind of just Dennis Hopper, I think, based on what I've seen him in. But like Super Mario Brothers is very in the same vein as his performance, like his King Koopa 
is very much in the same vein as this performance. His speed is very much in the same. Like he kind of pacinoed himself at this point in the '90s, where he was just playing yeah. these coked up, half baked villains. Uh-huh. Um, like and not some of them quite be- comedy relief. Like too hard of an edge to be comedy relief, but wanting to be right. slapstick. It's the whole movie has that vibe. Like it wants to be very hard edge, right? It wants to threaten to throw a child overboard to die in the ocean. It also wants you to think that like it's funny when a bottle gets smashed in somebody near somebody's face and they have a goofy mm-hmm. look on their on their face right like yeah there's there's just this weird juxtaposition of slapstick weird silly humor and this hard edge that the movie wants to have and it doesn't work yeah and it's kind of there's a little bit of um, the fifth element DNA in here too because I feel like the Hopper for a lot okay. of these ninety films is stuck in that same Gary Oldman Zorg where it's <laughs> like this guy is Darth Vader but he also is Christopher Lloyd you know sure, it's like if yeah. Christopher Lloyd played Darth Vader it's like yeah, okay he's scary and the movie's telling me he's scary and he's got a lot of power and he's doing a lot of bad things but camp the camp factor is really high yeah. on these on these villains um and, it and that's really, fine but it's a, it's a tonal clash like you said yeah yeah it's total clash um it, i guess i didn't remember this movie picking up so quickly like i thought there was a lot more up front i th- i guess i thought the the slowness in the second act was kind of front loaded and then it really picked up and and kicked into gear but this movie kind of starts very quickly yeah. like he you know, gets to this flotilla, this atoll um, within the first 10 minutes of the movie. And here's the other thing about this movie uh, that I find absolutely delightful. This movie, in my mm-hmm. mind, will forever be and has always been the movie where Kevin Costner drinks his own pee. It, because <laughs> right off the bat, too. that opening shot, like they, they just zoom in on the world. Right. And they come right down to his boat and they they almost come right down to him pissing into this jar. And the camera, fo- you know how they say follow the money? In this movie, it's follow mm-hmm. the piss. Because this this mm-hmm. is a brilliant shot where they're zoomed in on the container as he's peeing into it. As he yeah, stops peeing, yeah. it goes up to his ass. And mm-hmm. then as he zips up, and then he takes the container, pours it in, and the camera is following the jar of piss the entire time. Follows it through the filter. Follows it up to his mouth. It's... Oh, it's so good. So good. I could yeah, not like, have been happier it's, it's as like, a 13 year old seeing that. It's like the Warner in Goodfellas, only <laughs> instead of uh, Ray Liotta, it's just a jar of piss. Uh, I, I, that intro is yeah. really. That intro is really amazing because like the dissolve and I forgot how it all came together, but it has like the, you know, famous universal classic logo grainy with the world. And then there's this uh, narrator comes in and says in the far future, the polar uh, ice caps melt and you see them melt and the Uh world kind of start dissolve under it. And now the world's covered in water and it just keeps zooming in until you're actually in the ocean on the guy's boat. I thought that was really effective. And then. It doesn't really kind of stop. He um, meets a drifter, and then he goes and or no, he doesn't. He he goes to an atoll and does some trading, and mm-hmm. then there's like like there's like one action and scene after another, and then you get to the second act where it's just him and the girl and the little girl, and it grinds to a halt. I got some theories on why that is. Should we like? How do you want to go with this? Because I haven't even talked about the cast. Like, um, yeah, let's should, do that. Um, I was just reminiscing right. a little bit, but yeah, let's talk about the details. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Yeah, so this film, um, like I said, was directed by, um, oh shoot, who's Kevin this guy? Reynolds. Kevin, yeah, this this movie is directed by Kevin Reynolds, is written by Peter Rader and David Tooey, but it actually has like, I think, seven different credited screenwriters, including oh, a very young Joss Whedon. Oh, Jesus you know Christ. That? Yeah, 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 I'm, we're going to talk about that when we talk about the pro- troubled production. Um, wow. It stars Kevin Costner, who was coming in here pretty hot still he had had like a decade of box office success leading up to this uh let's just let's just start there um 1987's the untouchables it's an incredible film brian de palma love it 1988 bull durham not even a baseball fan pretty good 1989 field of dreams if you've got a relationship with your dad it's going to make you cry uh 1990 dances with wolves won tons of oscars made tons of money made people watch a three and a half hour movie uh 1991 robin hood prince of thieves which 
I got to see that again. I haven't seen it for like 20 years. And I remember this being so much fun. Hmm. Um, 1991 JFK, which we just reviewed, I think, last year. and uh, Or maybe the year before that, which... Terrible history, but a very entertaining conspiracy film. 1992, The Bodyguard, which I can't even describe to you how big this was. Like, not just in box office, not only in, like, making your mom cream her jeans for Kevin Costner, but the crossover success of Whitney Houston's uh, I Will Always Love You, or whatever the hell that song's called. Like, it just was a multidimensional ear and mind and eye worm. Mm. And then he hits 94's epic Wyatt Earp which couldn't even outduel the other movie about Wyatt Earp, Tombstone, mm-hmm. which is the vi- way f- vast superior film. And then he hit Waterworld. And then his career is going to eventually, two years later, just be destroyed by another big budget um, post-apocalyptic film, The Postman. Mm. And he never really recovers from that. Like he yeah. does, he, he did, he had a, would you call it a starring role in 13 Days in 2000? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it kind of like role. an on... It's an ensemble piece, though. Like, he's kind of playing second fiddle to Bobby and Jack Kennedy yeah. uh, and Khrushchev. And then 2016, he, he had the hidden figures, and he's been in the, the Superman films. But it's, uh, it's his, his days of, as a leading man uh, were, were firmly over. Um, yeah. So he was joined in the starring capacity by Dennis Hopper, who plays the villainous Deacon. Uh, Jim didn't like his performance. I thought it was pretty fun. But it, it is tonally... Uh, oh yeah, a big problem in this film. No, I, I love it. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's perfectly ridiculous, but it doesn't yeah. belong in this movie. Gene uh, Triplehorn, which herself I think was having a, a really nice career up yeah. until it hit this this film's bump. Um, yeah, she plays was in Helen. Basic Instinct and Basic Instinct, The Firm, Reality yeah. Bites. She will achieve small screen success uh, in Big Love uh, on Showtime. Was that Showtime or HBO? I think it was Showtime. Uh, Tina Majorino as Enola. Do you know who this is? Where you've seen uh, her elsewise? I, I I know she does a lot of uh, TV now, but she's also in Napoleon Dynamite. Nine years later, she's Deb from Deb from Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, and also Jack Black. Yeah, as a pilot, just one of his first roles, just randomly as a smoker pilot for two or three minutes in the middle of the second act. Yeah. Um. So this, like I said, this movie was, but the thing is what's weird about this movie, because this is the era when I was reading Starlog and all these science fiction trade mags, um, everyone felt, the, 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 this was like a soap opera following this production. Like it was like a big news story about how lavish the production was. It was a big news story about how lavish Kevin Costner's side of the, like he was staying in a $5,000 a night hotel. Why his crew was sweltering on the beaches in like ramshackle <laughs> trailers with uh, internal temperatures 125 degrees. The um, he the the hurricane destroyed at least one, maybe two. I read uh, conflicting res- uh, reports, costing like a 20 million dollar rebuild. Um, just all kinds of problems. It was supposed to be like uh, I don't. I, it ended up being like a 166 day shoot, and it was supposed to be half that. Um, the director went to Steven Spielberg, you know, the other guy who had a famously troubled water production in uh-huh. Jaws and said, what is your recommendation for filming on the water? And Steven Spielberg gave him one simple word of advice. Do not shoot on the open water. Yeah. The production company ignored that advice <laughs> and pissed away $175 million on this movie as a result. Ugh. Um, you, you so could have done d- this. We've, we've seen, you know, big tanks used right like to shoot in controlled circumstances um like titanic did a bunch of that there there there's so many ways to do this that could have just involved a matte painting in the back of the horizon yeah Mm -hmm. and the sky and and just shoot it in a controlled environment yeah could have saved them a lot of money and the thing is is like uh so if you don't know because this is a 25 year old movie but this movie sets it takes place about 500 years in the future after the polar mi- ice caps have completely melted water covers the entire world and it's essentially mad max on the ocean that's it that's it yeah. uh there is a a a chosen child that has a tattoo on her back that might point to the mythical source of dry land um but it's it's just mad max and water now um, if you're freaking out about global warming, uh, I want to rest rest assured that if the polar ice caps melt, the oceans rise by like two, three hundred feet, not yeah. the four or five miles required to bury, you know, Everest. Right. right. So no, there is insane. some 
there is some there is some scientific liberties being taken not that like 200 feet rise of ocean wouldn't be catastrophic mm-hmm. um you know especially if you're all living by the coast but uh yeah if you're living in intrig- sweden it'll be a problem but it it is an intriguing setup for a movie and it the world I think is fascinating the, yeah. the world, the cultures, the costuming. And I wanted more and more of that. And apparently there's a cut that they call the Ulysses cut that started as a fan edit where I guess, um, ABC got the broadcast rights of this and put 40 minutes back into the film, especially in the second act with some stuff amongst the smokers and about their culture and how kind of thing, how kind of things kind of work, which might be why the second half is boring. Mm-hmm. Um, or the second act is boring. Um, but then the studio decided they liked it so much that they duplicated it into a later release of the movie. I've never seen this. I kind of want to now because that's more of the stuff that I wanted to see in the film. Um, yeah, and but I yeah, want to draw a distinction is, between the art direction, which I think is fantastic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the same is true of Mad Max. I, I think that's fantastic art direction, but I don't want to confuse that with the storytelling and the world building that they do, because I think there is a lot to argue about with the world building and the, the details of the world they've built. Yeah. Um, so I thought that maybe we should talk about the movie a little bit, except instead of talking around the movie, Uh um, do you want to start doing that? Because like I said, I've got tons of, uh, materials about like what went wrong and why this movie was like inflated because again i think this is the bones of a very good movie mm-hmm. and you know the big problem is kevin costner just has zero charisma that's the um, thing the Roger- best thing about a kevin costner movie is never kevin costner it's never kevin costner yeah it's always the yeah. movie he's in that carries him i wanted to get defensive at untouchables but his elliot ness is just a piece of drywall yeah that's like, kevin costner in a nutshell with, without andy garcia and uh, sean connery and Robert De Niro playing out of his mind Capone, that mm-hmm. is a very forgettable movie. So, uh, yeah, I um, let's talk about the movie itself. What And let's talk about the stuff we really like about it. Because the the art, like you said, the art direction, this the Mariner, which is the name of, of Kevin Costner's, well, he's got an, un, he's, he doesn't have a name, but the, he's credited as the Mariner. His boat as a sailing aficionado is amazing. Huh. Uh and here's the thing that blew me away when I was researching this. It's real. They had two versions of this boat, one that was built explicitly as a racing catamaran that could achieve like speeds of like 45 miles an hour, and then one that had all practical effects, like that windmill that's retracted into the sail boom and the boom that shot out of the hull and the and the auto-deploying sails were all real. And it could it also it functioned as a, it wasn't as fast as a racing boat, but it could actually sail. Huh. That is fucking amazing. And someone bought that boat and it's still in private hands operating somewhere. <laughs> nice. Like, I couldn't believe that that shit all worked. It's like it's like something out of Knight Rider or or like an animated film, like a like that 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 show I used to like in the 80s mask. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't believe that this stuff was all. I mean, I figured it was all practical because this was right at the shaky yeah. edge of like digital effects. But the fact that they built that and actually worked, it was a working sailing boat that just blew me away. Um, yeah. And it made sense too because the, the 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 story of this is this guy is a fish man that can dive down in the shallow seas and retrieve like precious artifacts. And he would like because at first I'm thinking like, well, how does Mad Max like it'd be like have Mad Max having this like battle fortress that he could privately finance? But Kevin Costner could do that because he's like the wealthiest man on Waterworld. So he's got sure. the best boat. He's got the best material. He's got the thing perfectly set up to be the loner character that he is. Mm-hmm. And I really like that setup. No, nothing exemplifies his wealth and and assurity of of comfort better than him eating the leaves off a tomato plant. Uh, I feel like yeah. that's the least useful, uh, the least productive use of a tomato plant is to mm-hmm. eat the leaves off of it and kill it. <laughs> I I thought that th- there's a couple of points where like he's got this bonsai tree that's growing like four or five large limes. Uh-huh. Is that even physically possible? It's a cool idea, but holy hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they wouldn't be big limes, but they would be certainly limes, yeah. Huh, huh, yeah. I mean, the idea that you'd have, like, you'd have to have something to, like, stave off scurvy or whatnot. Yeah. Like, they, they had answers to all this stuff. It's just, like, just on my edge of believability for some of these things. Like, um, 
you know, how are people eating? I, I guess I, I never felt like food was a problem because they're on the ocean. Uh, with humanity mm-hmm. being destroyed, I imagine there's just like teeming life that you could, you know, like you, you could catch fish, you could do all kinds of different things. You could eat algae, seaweed. Um, right. And freshwater, like if you can process urine, you can certainly desalinate seawater. So uh, to me, like the problem of this world is like raw materials, but flabber i was flabbergasted to see like that seems to be the one problem they don't have like building or and maintaining enormous steel structures not a problem it's it's food it's fresh food and fresh water that's the problem for these people does it not rain in water world paradoxically yeah maybe not uh i I don't know there are a lot of strange things about water world but yeah i i think they do a pretty good job explaining most of the stuff that they want to do in this. Um, like, yeah, I, I was kind of impressed when they said, okay, well, the Mariner is able to, you know, dive underwater and get these artifacts and trade, trade up for stuff. Now I'm not sure what the value of these things is to the people who are not the Mariner. Like, why would mm-hmm. you ever trade any food or any water for a pile of dirt? Uh, well, I understand see, I, the novelty of seeing it, but it's completely useless. Well, don't they like like um like growing things like on these atolls? Like, I guess I thought that dirt would be prized because you could actually yeah. grow tomatoes and things like that. Paper, but paper. That's the thing that blew my mind. Like, it makes no sense. I bought because because uh, talking about like the costuming, I kept on noticing how like their costumes were made out of either fish skin or things that would float in water. Like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of like. Uh, those um what do they call those plastic rings that hold like six packs together yeah there's yeah. a lot of those kind of braided together in vests and like little bits of plastic and things like that stuff that would float on an ocean um yeah. but yeah i mean i it made sense that dirt was valuable but then why like you know five pounds of dirt is worth two pounds of water that didn't make sense to me because like again it didn't seem like water would be in a short supply it's so easy to make fresh water sure. Like, you either catch it in rain, you can, you know, heat things up and, you know, uh, purify it through steam. There's, like, just tons of ways to desalinate water, especially with a reduced human population. But, you know, getting raw materials and all that kind of stuff, I thought, the yeah, the economy was a, a little fucked up. But I also really liked just just going with the world, the, the idea that they have, like, all these rituals about reclaiming bodies. Yeah. Like, their prayers were all about, you know, like... Uh, bones to bread uh veins the vines stuff like this and as they lower your body into this organic soup that dissolves it and then you know i don't know they make soil who knows what they do with all that but i thought that stuff was really pretty cool the idea that anytime a trader would come in that was impressive genetic stock that you'd want to like have your daughter's breed with him essentially because mm-hmm. things get weird when it's just all kept in the atoll <laughs> like i thought some of that stuff was kind of cool um but yeah. then you know the smokers do you want to talk about the smokers a bit sure yeah the, those are the people who uh <laughs> well it's revealed over the course of the movie what their fuel source is which yeah is just eye-rollingly bad in my opinion but uh because uh-huh. it's just so silly uh, but those those are the people who are addicted to fuel, and actually, in in some cases, in the case of uh, Deacon Dennis Hopper's character, hates people who don't use fuel, has a, an active hatred of sales, mm-hmm. as as he claims in the film. And I don't know why did a sale kill his mother. I I don't I, know. This has just got to be cultural commentary, right? The fact that like fuel and hydrocarbons the are bad what guys are, obsessed with it yeah, yeah. like it, it, it's carbon dioxide is what's killing pollution is what killing the planet so the bad guys got to be it's he's he's essentially a captain planet villain mm-hmm. right he's he, he's his home his 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 homeland is the and this is something else revealed throughout the movie they're living on the old exxon valdez uh, that's the which thing, yeah. re- which ran onto a reef and polluted like thousands and thousands of la- of, of miles of pristine Alaskan uh, uh, wilderness. Um, they got a picture of the captain that did it. Yeah. Joseph Hazelwood uh, framed and they call him St. Joe and he gets inspiration from this asshole that I think this guy was drunk at the time that the thing was ran aground and did all. So it's like there's like this guy was a personal villain too at the time. So I think because not, not only were they like 
their their name smokers because they're running on poorly refined crude oil. Mm-hmm. So like all their shit just literally smokes and is like very inefficient. But they also are in possession of an enormous amount of cigarettes, an enormous amount of alcohol. They're mm-hmm. like all of humanity's vices distilled sure. into this one boat of like inbred despotism. Yeah. And it's a really cool idea for a villain. And I think that Dennis Hopper is a pretty good, does a pretty good job at that. But um, I, there's a couple of ridiculous things like towards the end of the film where they're going to take off towards dry land and they're just trying to row this thing. Uh-huh. They're rowing an oil tanker. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> I mean, it's bonkers. It's crazy, but hell, it might work. I, I love the idea that like this thing's been floating for maybe 500 years and there's like 30 feet of barnacle crust at the end of it. Like, mm-hmm. how fast can they get going with these oars? Like, <laughs> I, two, I'm three miles that, an hour? Yeah, there, there's no steel under there. It's more barnacle than boat now. Like, yeah, probably. Hundreds, hundreds of years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so they said it's 500. Like, and I, I don't even know there'd be that much superstructure left after 500 years of just constant salt water. Ex- yeah. uh, you know, they don't understand like, cause like I think sh- modern ships have these like sacrificial yeah. uh, zinc anodes that like take all of the galvanic corruption, corrosion. And like they concentrate at one point, those things burn out. Like they literally like uh, that's a solid bar of zinc that just gets corroded. And mm-hmm. like, there's no way these guys are going to be smart enough to keep up on that. So how the hell does this boat even start? But on the other hand, yeah. it is, like it, it's it's essentially like a screen door at this point, like the old joke. And you might be right; the barnacles are what's keeping it afloat <laughs> at this point. Um, but uh, it it the, the smoke. Dennis Hopper is cool, but all of his lieutenants are suffer from the commando problem. Like his right hand man looks like the brother of the hamburger salad that the, the the ham salad sandwich that plays the the art the the second banana to the commando the guy wearing the fishneck bennett B- yeah there you go <laughs> yeah he's the bastard brother of bennett like he just is a big beefy red-faced dude on the ocean waves and he's not intimidating like when you got a 12-year-old girl and you're threatening to flay her alive to get her back tattoo off so you can stretch it out and examine it, there should be some kind of fear that that might take place. But the little girl's not afraid. I'm not afraid. These guys, like, I don't even, if Kevin Costner doesn't show up, I don't think they got the heart to do it. Uh-huh. They're all talk. They're all bark and no bite. Um, is there any, does, does Dennis Hopper do anything, like, really psychotic in this film other than just engage in war on the open sea you know i guess the bodies that he uses to try and trick like he kills a bunch of people on this little buoy thing yeah and tricks them into thinking that you know they're they're coming to a place of security and then yeah i, I mean it's implied that he killed those people right and then he, this is pretty macabre using their bodies to wave it but it's five. so for it's so it's such a such a remove. I, I think it's it's very similar to like the Starbase scene in Wrath of Khan, where like mm-hmm. you realize that Khan has come and like strung up and and bled out all these Federation scientists. And it's it's filmed as a, a horrific real, realization. Yeah. But these guys being used as human marionettes are almost kind of like funny in the Pirates of the Caribbean way. Right. Um, that, that's what I mean. Like they mix this hard edge with with a silliness. Uh, way too often for there to ever be any real sense of danger. Um, the other thing yeah. I, I guess you could say is he's got some guy who's most certainly going to die soon, regardless down in the fuel tanks, sort of like dipsticking <laughs> yeah. the thing to measure he's it. The, like, yeah. Constantly. He's just the keeper of the level of uh, black stuff. That's fucked up. That's dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty grim. Like this guy just lives on a boat and he like, I guess subsists. A boat within a boat, and he subsists on the spit of Dennis Hopper. Uh-huh. Like, that's his, like, it's kind of like uh, there's an Immortan Joe to, like, uh, you know, I don't want you to get too addicted to this uh, hydro, so here, open your mouth. I'm going to spit into it. There's yeah. your payment for today. And, and then, I mean, uh, it's what's real a- dark when the boat explodes, like, and the guy sees the explosion coming. He's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I'm dark. I'm, I'm, I'm being called home. Um, yeah. So we 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 slid into talking bad mouth in the movie again. I will say this. Oh, I have more of that. I can't believe how inventive the stunts are. Like anything you can do on the water, mm-hmm. water skiing, jet skiing, ski doing, uh, boating, hydroplaning, planing, 
uh, water skiing behind a plane, doing uh, complicated water skiing stunts off ramps, uh, like uh, kite uh, sail, kite sail, uh, bungee an jumping from a hot air airship into the water to retrieve, like every single thing you can possibly do on the water because there is no land. You're not going to yeah. be able to go to some like kind of like fortress. Like I guess the Exxon Valdez, with the exception, mm-hmm. like everything you can do on a water. Uh, like underwater jet ski stunts and and ambushes and stuff. That stuff was all was really really cool. And whoever had the like, we well, start off with whiteboards. Like, okay, boys, well, t- throw me some watercraft and what you can do with them. And uh, there are no wrong answers, and we're gonna fit every one of these things into this fucking movie. <laughs> That's had to be like how it would how it went down. Because oh, my yeah. God, they they did it all. They did it all. They really did. And I I actually saw. Within the last five years, I, I saw the Universal Studios live show, uh, live mm. production of Waterworld, which is in this big like SeaWorld-esque aquarium kind of uh, theater. And it's got a big set that's built up like the Atoll and Waterworld. And there are just insane stunts that they do. I was super impressed by the Waterworld live show. Uh, if you ever get a chance, don't sleep on that. It's It's really fucking good. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another thing I really liked about the world building is when the Mariner takes Helen below seas to show like what what where dry land is, mm-hmm. you know, like and you, you, you get to go through this like ghostly city that's partially collapsed. There's a submarine that sank through it. Um, I thought that was pretty. Eff- I mean, it's clearly just like green screen, but it's weird green like it's underwater green screen. He's actually swimming. Um, they just composited yeah. digitally composited this background, uh, and and that's probably I, I remember like when I think about this movie before I watched it again, I started thinking about okay, what do I remember about this? And I remember Kevin Costner pissing into the jug mm-hmm. and processing his own urine. Um, I remembered Gene Triplehorn's ass, okay. and I remember this underwater scene. Everything else was kind of like a mishmash. Like I, I knew kind of roughly what happened and like the arc of the movie, but those are the the visuals that kind of stood out for me. And that scene still pretty much holds up. You know, like you could do it a little bit better. Like, is oh, is yeah. the Phantom Menace when the Jedi go swim down to the Gungan city? Is it ten times better? I mean, Aquaman than this scene? is ten times better. Sure, Aquaman There's... is it is it is it ten times better? The compositing was pretty rough in this. Oh, they also I, like. I they showed like uh, the effect of uh, Kevin Costner swimming very fast. Like uh, they're probably just to- towing him, you know, yeah. with a rope. But like he's porpoising, and like there's a couple shots where I don't think that's. Did- I think it's practical. Um, and they used, I think his name's Laird Hamilton, the famous like big wave surfer, to do like all this underwater stunt work for Kevin Costner. But it looks really good. Like he he believably swims very very fast. Like you would think a fish man could. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. Uh... Man, I have so many. I have so many complaints. So many complaints about this movie. Uh, right, do you have no no more positive things to say about it? No more positive things. There's not because a I'm lot kind of running out to say about this aside from the art direction being great. Uh, yep. The story being, I, I don't know. The the story is fine. The story's like, fine. The world building. The world building is good though it's completely unbelievable like the scenes you're talking about like you know you mentioned how even all the water in the world you know ice caps melted everything wouldn't raise the Mm -hmm. sea level more than you know 200 something feet um Mm -hmm. and in this we see it's thousands thousands of feet uh so you know what happened like did did we they talked about all the the things we did um, and, you know, the ice caps melting, but there had to be something else. Did we go out and grab a bunch of glaciers from space and bring them back? Yeah. Oops. A couple comets. Too much couple water. smacked into it. Yeah. Didn't think that would happen. Uh, is it? Uh-huh. So, so there's a shot with an enormous moon, just like an enormous moon. Uh, it's mm. it's 1,500 times the size of our moon. Did we pull the moon too close? Is this like a tidal thing? Is it is it pulling water <laughs> yeah, there was, from like, you, up? Yeah. 
I did a research. I did research on this, and apparently I, there was an early art direction that depi- depicted two moons to like show that they're like the Earth somehow ca- captured some other giant uh, planetoid going through, and that was it was some a, kind of t- in that five, span of time. Yeah, it, 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 we captured another moon, and that was like messing up the tides and stretching out the water. But huh. you know. But then that just implies that you just need to keep sailing because you'll eventually get to the the bulgy part where the dry land's being exposed. Um, Fair, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know where the hell. I, I, uh, I it, it also has been said that that like if you ironed out all the wrinkles on the Earth, so it's like perfect, like like it the the water would perfectly cover the surface for like you know pretty far, pretty pretty. Pretty uh, pretty far depth, so maybe there's some plate tectonics at work too. That like okay. once the ice rolled off of uh, the Antarctic, that like shit started bulging and flattening sure. out and stuff. I don't know. I don't. Uh, know. It, it, okay, uh, maybe you could explain that stuff, but they didn't explain it in the movie. And and B, the scene that you're talking about with the underwater swimming, he's dragging her into crush depth. Like <laughs> this this shit. I look. I've seen the abyss. Mm-hmm. Right. He, you can't. Mm-hmm. A human body can't go much more than like. 50 60 feet underwater like a bare yeah. human body without suffering yeah. extreme extreme uh health effects so like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you die like you you go as deep as she did without any uh apparatus or anything you're dead so yeah. like well yeah i mean because then in the real life bathospheres that they had they had air supplies as you went down deeper because the the water pressure increases and that bubble gets smaller and smaller so you release more air displaces more water they didn't have that so yeah like Maybe that that something with that like she's looking at a gauge the the kid uh is looking at a, that's gauge. Just a depth gauge I, I thought so too which you know it was implied there's like either the 700 feet or meters either one it's way too depth d- deep to just do a simple like you know dive bell like that the they yeah. got yeah yeah i mean you just you can't do it it's it's <laughs> there are so many things like that in this movie that i just don't understand and the thing is, is you could easily. The thing is, is like all these move, all these things could have been fixed, like because you would overlook all these with the rule of cool. But this movie's just not that cool, right? It wants to be, and it carries itself with that swagger. But it always comes back to me: Kevin Costner is just a wet piece of seaweed. Mm-hmm. He's literally wet the entire movie. He's wet. They talk. He they, there's like interviews of him bitching about like in between every take, they dump a bucket of water over his head because he's supposed to be wet the entire time. He's a fish man. <laughs> um, but he's literally a so- a soggy fucking mayonnaise sandwich in this film, and he also is playing this guy with an edge, which, to be fair, I guess is a mutant um, who gets hounded from atoll to atoll. You would probably get pretty sick of human shit. Yeah. Um, but then inexplicably, they make Gene Triplehorn and uh, the late the the uh, the girl and Nola. They're big assholes too. Like I. Mm-hmm. In a post-apocalypse, I don't buy that children would just be unmitigated brats. Um, the world's too harsh and violent for kids to grow up with this kind of entitlement uh, thing. And mm. the idea that yeah. like she would say, like, hey, I'll let you out of here uh, if, if and you can give us free room and board. And then her think that that's it. Like she's doesn't that 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 this guy's like can't throw us overboard because he pro i don't know it's weird because she like grew up on this shitty world but like they act like they didn't they act like they are 20 late 20th century people that just beam down and they're like both like karens that are just shocked and upset at the service that they're getting on the sailing vessel that they have hired (laughs) Uh um it's just really and like so much of the drama in the second half is generated by their stupidity. You know, like he's trying to solve a problem and Gene Triplehorn gets on the the harpoon gun and fucks everything up and destroys his boat. And, and but then yeah, he I, his I reaction that. to that's that, fine. Right, but his reaction to that is to cut their hair? Yeah, I like, so th- this so is weird. One of the major problems in the second act that just does not feel right. Um is just what the line they're trying to draw between him being a good guy and a bad guy, right? Like, yes. there's there's some mix that they're going for here, some hard edge they're trying to find on the Mariner, but it never it never manifests really. Like, it's all just like looks and threats and stuff like that. Where he has no reason to take them along in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Other, like, I guess. 
I guess there is a series of moments where he he's kind of saved by them, like the gate thing. Yeah, yeah. He's right. I, he's got to go up and and help like them. Say, they, like they, they, she let she lets him out of the cage. That's it. That's as far as I can tell. The only thing that they did, they half opened the door. He had to finish the rest. Like right. Um, it, it just but, they're they're but, trying to do this thing where like there's a weird 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 romance here, um, that is just kind of gross. A um and B doesn't really strike me as any of their characters like it's yeah it just isn't played right well like like i hear you know han solo anti-hero um shoots people first in bars is all about the money doesn't have a lot of principles Mm -hmm. but he didn't try to sell leia into sexual slavery right he didn't Um, actually and and crucially like mariner goes through with that but then yeah, just for changed some his reason, mind changes because his mind. Be, 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 because the paper wasn't up to snuff, or he felt like in and like the reason that he's not just a complete villain is because he refused to sell the girl in the 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 twelve year old girl into sexual slavery. Uh-huh. It is it is rough, and then they then they turn that corner into like a romance that never really gets requited because he's a fish man and he's got to go back to the sea, I guess, at the end. Right, and and that's the other the end I thought was unsatisfying because he has to go away, but why? Like, this isn't like Shane, he's wanted for murder and he's got to go back or he's going to, like, you know, swing from the gallows or whatever. It's like, well, I helped you get to dry land, but I'm a fish man. I belong at sea. Like, can't are you never going to come back here for trade? This is dry fucking land. Like, come back. Here's where you get your limes, buddy, and your fresh water. Like, this is your new base operations. Yeah, go out and roam to sea, maybe spread the gospel of dry land far and wide. But, like, why is this a goodbye, a permanent goodbye? Yeah, um, it shouldn't need to be. And I think like the whole idea of the mountaintop utopia is truly ridiculous in this world. Like yeah. this this implies a scenario in which the ice caps melted so rapidly that no one thought to go to higher ground. Like literally mm-hmm. our society just said, oh shit, here comes the water. We're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Jeff Bezos didn't try. Elon Musk didn't try. Nobody tried Uh to get to higher ground. That is the literal first thing you do when the water is coming. Get to higher ground. All the wealthy scientific and literate people are living on the moon and Mars. This is just the dregs of humanity left behind. That's why they're all assholes. That second moon is just a a space station. (laughs) That's That's no moon. It's it's a space station. Uh Um did you know that that location um i put in my notes is like is this supposed to be mount everest like this is like uh you know and and it is like that tattoo in his back if you decipher all the the kanji and and the glyphs that it is coordinates that point exactly to uh mount everest so okay. it is they but, but you're right like there should be tons of humans there and this should be the most popular thing. It's like, place on the planet and there was human population, but they died out. They were doomed. Why are you doomed? You're the ones that have like still dry land and fresh water. Right. And their response to being doomed is to tattoo babies and send them out in buckets of dirt on, cast them away like Moses or fucking Kalel from Krypton. Yeah. Get like, rid of all the, the things that will sustain our society here and our population. Yeah. Just send them out to the wasteland. Yeah, I there's like I and I don't know, maybe there's there's because I hear that there's the the Ulysses cut is named because there's a whole bunch of stuff in the denouement where, you know, she gives him a name Ulysses and tells him about the Odyssey and he's leaving because he knows there's other clans of mutants out there and he wants to tell them about where they can find refuge amongst dry land. And um, Mm. but I wonder how many other of these problems that 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 longer cut fixes. And I paradoxically. Um, I guess the director wanted to have the three-hour cut, but Kevin Costner refused because he thought the reason why Earp failed was because it was like three and a half hours long. So he's like, well, I don't want to make two three-plus-hour bombs in a row. And in fact, in fact, um, I guess the director wa- walked off the set like two-thirds of the way through the production, and Kevin Costner directed the last bit of the, the third of the movie. The fuck? Uh, the director was quoted as saying Kevin Costner should only star in movies he directs. That way he can work with his favorite actor and favorite director. Jesus. Um, <laughs> and I guess this guy also, so do you want to talk about, so do you want to talk more about the movie or do you want to talk about the, uh, do, do you have anything? Cause I want to talk about like all the research I did on the, all the things that went wrong with the production of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hit me. 
Okay, so in no particular order, one of the things I alluded to in the beginning is the inequity of this production. You had Kevin Costner staying at a $5,000 a night villa on the on the coast of Hawaii with a butler and a chef. Um, and all the crew were living on these little huts that didn't have air conditioning. And I guess it was like getting like 120 degrees during the daytime. So that like you had a like bad feelings between the production and the star and then the director of the piece. Um, the director and him, I, so this is the same guy that directed Prince of Thieves. I didn't know this, but I guess him and Kevin Costner butted heads throughout that. And he swore never to work with him again, but the producer, uh, got them both in a room and kind of settled the hash, but that didn't last throughout the film, the, the, the entire filming. So Kevin Costner has to take this thing over. The script had 36 different drafts involving six different writers. Joss Whedon came out for the, the, the rewrite crucial scenes in the final weeks of shooting. And I guess what he said is like uh, um, Kevin Costner essentially held a gun to his head and insisted all of his notes get put into the script. So Joss just was like cleaning up Kevin Costner dialogue and Kevin Costner plotting. Um, because that's the other thing is like this was written as a lighthearted children's movie. And when Kevin Costner took it over, he said, I want this to be a serious action film. So they in- injected a bunch of grim dark into it. And I think that explains a lot of like the clash of tone. Yep. Okay. Because I see it now. on a surface level, it's very grim, but there is nothing grim that really happens. Yeah. Um, neither the main set that weighed over 30 tons and was also wrecked. This is, I think that either the, the, the atoll, one of the atolls. So there's a whole plot of the slavers. You hear this mentioned, you got the smokers and the slavers. I guess the set that the slavers the action piece, uh, 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 was supposed to happen on sank and they didn't have enough money to rebuild it because the atoll set had previously sunk and they rebuilt it. Jesus. So they just cut that part out of the movie. But none of these sets nor any of the 30 boats they used had bathrooms. So they had to stop and ferry people on boats to these floating portalettes that they had anchored off the coast. Just hang your ass uh, over the boat edge. And, like- <laughs> and 165 days? Why don't you just bring those bathrooms closer? Can you not fit a portalette inside this atoll set? Can you, I, yeah, I don't like this is shit that like, oh, here's another thing. Um, wow. the crew, the, the cat, the, so they're deciding whether they'd want to film this off the coast of Australia or the coast of Hawaii. And they decided on Hawaii because at the time they wanted to film it, it was going to be winter in Australia, but they did no research. And during the time that they filmed this in Hawaii, the prevailing winds were 40 to 50 miles an hour. So they were constantly blowing the sets out of range, constantly blowing things out of shots. Like, in fact, in the movie, you can see several points where the set had drifted off to where you could see dry land in the background. <laughs> oh, no. Like on the edge of the shot, you can see like I mountains and cliffs of Hawaii. Yeah, I did, too. But like, I guess then that's because like, well, fuck it. We're just going to get this shot. So that was a problem. Um, Kevin Costner demanded in post-production that the VFX crew hide his his receding head hairline digitally. They failed. They failed. Like they, they of, totally failed. One of my biggest nightmares now is Kevin Costner swimming at me underwater with his stringy hair plastered to, back to his head. It, it, it's like it's right up there with the baby in Train Spotting. That's my biggest nightmare. <laughs> but man, this cost. It's bad. This. It's bad, and this is 95, so digital stuff was really in its infancy, and it cost like several million dollars just to poorly hide his balding spots. Just give up some of your vanity or or wear a wig if you if you want that to be covered up. They, fi- they shut down filming three different stretches because of hurricane season. They had to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Mark Isham. So one of my complaints to the film is I thought the score was very vanilla and boring. And then I started researching this stuff. And it turns out that this, the, they originally hired this guy named Mark Isham to write the score. Kevin Costner got it. And he goes, well, this is too moody and ethnic for the movie that I'm trying to make. So they hired, I think, James Horner at the last minute to come in and just do a bare bones vanilla action movie score like it's this almost is like something you can get out of adobe's licensed material it's it's a just an action movie score there's nothing Waterworld. there's no distinct like themes for characters and stuff it's just an action thing they're not like playing Um, plastic bottles as drums or anything in the tracks no 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 and i'm like it's like 
too ethnic. One of the coolest things about this film is like they had that kind of firefly shit where it's like a blend of Polynesian yeah. and different languages, and they had this own kind of like belter, you know, patois, this uh, this Creole language, and like Kevin's and instead of and leaning into that and how distinct and melting pot it is, they're like ah no. It's, I mean the, the this central. Is, the the central tension of the movie will they find dry land is solved by a Rosetta Stone for God's sake, yeah, right? like, yeah, it, yeah. It how, how could this movie? How could the sound in this movie possibly be too ethnic? I don't know. I don't know. But that was what Kevin the Kevin uh, Kevin Costner's opinion. Uh, and that's hilarious so because th- this this movie won or, or sorry was nominated for an Oscar for best sound. So like you've got the soundtrack in juxtaposition to the actual sound of the movie. Yeah, and I think it probably. I mean, I watched it with our, our my surround sound system, and like it did. Like, um, there's some cool effects. Like I noticed, like when they harpooned the plane, that like that the the you know I just noticed little stuff like that. The twanging of the the cables and the creaking mm-hmm. of the various sets and stuff. There was. Uh, um, I, I thought like the explosion effects of like the, the final set piece where the Exxon Valdez gets flared to death. Um, that stuff was always really cool, but I don't know. I mean, just boy, that last act, if, if they had, if they had, the, if the last act had been, had been preceded by a decent second act, I think it would have worked really well because that like speech that the girl gives about like, oh, when the Mariner gets here, you're so fucked because he's done this and he's done that. We haven't really seen him do anything, but like, yeah. like, like stuff out of like a sitcom, like he's just putting out fires and shit on his boat that his stowaways have caused. Like he's mm-hmm. being flummoxed and, and he does weird things where like they just get away from the smokers and Gene Triplehorn gives him a little bit of uh lip about like dry land. He's like, I'll show you dry land. He takes her under this underwater uh, odyssey and he gets back. And of course the smokers are there. Mm-hmm. And they're there to fuck him because, like, of course they are. You just barely escaped them on your fucking sailboat, and they've got speedboats, dude. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's the most hilarious thing is the sailboat running from these jet skis. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, maybe a, maybe a jet ski on the best windy day, uh, but right, right. You're not you're not getting away from you know a powerboat. Yeah, especially if you have to flee into the wind, you're going to be fucked. Yeah. I mean, they could just flank you um, and you're done. So yeah, but I don't know. Uh, what what else you got to say for fi- for? I mean, there, there's uh, a couple of funny moments. Like I I don't hate the comedy in this. I just think it's misplaced. Um, hmm. th- there are, you know, I talked a little bit about the the speech that he's giving at the end, which is you know all bluster and bullshit. He hasn't actually figured this. Uh, the cipher out but mm-hmm. while he's giving that speech he's like he smashes a bottle on the railing uh, and mm-hmm. it like shoots glass into the eyes of the guy behind him who gives a weird reaction mm-hmm. he fires a gun in the same guy's face uh, th- th- there's a moment where th- they're trying to take off that biplane on the on the oil tanker oh, and, yeah, yeah. and Kevin Gosner pulls the the bottom of it off right Mm-hmm. And then it goes smashing into a wall at what has to be at least sixty miles an hour. No seatbelts, right? Girl, uh-huh. totally fine. But he, yeah, he just uh-huh. she face plants right into the steel wall. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. Hopper and then get, after that, they with reveal his the Uh huh. Uh, Dennis Hopper getting fit with his prosthetic eye. I thought was oh, pretty funny. Oh god! And then they leave the eyelashes in the whole movie. Uh huh. It's uh-huh. incredible incredibly yeah it looks like he's got some some kind of like fucking fly bait or whatever fly fishing lure stuck underneath his eye or something what what looks worse uh kevin costner's stringy hair or those eyelashes (laughs) well i don't know because it's like who knows what horror show it looked like before they digitally altered it but yeah i don't it was just every time i saw a close-up of dennis hopper's face uh with those things sticking out from his eye patch uh it it did give me the heebie-jeebies for sure for sure yeah and some of the stuff I like, like the uh, his eye patch is like a pair of half blacked out swim goggles. Yep, it's like Pretty that makes sweet. total sense yep. in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, the there's some stuff that also doesn't feel fleshed out. Like the romance doesn't feel fleshed out enough. Some of the details of like how did Waterworld happen don't feel fleshed out. But mutants, mutants are a thing that's like in this world, but not really explained or not integrated well i mean it it half is it's it's much like you know the him being a bad guy versus a good guy 
it's mm-hmm. like it's in there, but it doesn't feel right the way they incorporated it. Like mutants are a thing that people notice and a thing that people hate, but he's really the only one we see. And yes, he uses those mutant powers to like get all the things he's got, but I don't feel like the mutants were much of a thing in the movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think that my, I wonder if that's because, again, that Ulysses cut had alluded to colonies of mutants. Uh, and also, like, I where why would they be hostile towards that? You'd think, like, if I am on Waterworld and I see a guy with gills and webbed feet that can, like, is essentially a Superman, I would want my daughters to breed with them even more. Yeah. Because I want my grandkids to have fish parts. Absolutely. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know, like maybe he's got like a big spiny fish dick and it's going to be a problem. But like, don't you want like that's the that's the that's the the future of humanity, it seems like on this world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although I also wonder, like if carbon just plummeted to zero and the wor- world is ocean covered the earth and presumably like algae and plankton, which does the real heavy lifting of oxygen production on the earth. I wonder how like fast it would revert back to like when the, the polar caps would start reforming and all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, like I was just wondering like, man, what would this do to like wind currents and rainfall and all that? Like what yeah. would it do to the climate is like the whole world tropical now? Like, but I also like wonder how long it would take for that to, to revert back to, to the olden days. I don't um, think how long it take thought for, about that. The movie no. just said, this is a cool idea for an action movie. Let's yes. do it. Yes. And that's what that like. I, I read that the this was in, originally conceived in the 80s during the heyday of Mad Max. And they're like, literally, how can we rip off Mad Max? What's the opposite of a desert world? Water world, baby, over cocktails. And then they spent like <laughs> the next seven years trying to get it made. And Kevin Costner's like, yes, that's the one for me. I want it. I want it done. Yeah. It's, uh, it's but the also, equivalent of the day after tomorrow. Uh, in yeah. In its. In its conception scientific rigor uh-huh. <laughs> yeah it's like i don't think they did research on the weather because they didn't even research the volume of ice and how much water it would make if it melted in the poles and that yeah. information was readily available mm-hmm. i mean this is in the days where i think um i don't know because i used to be conservative it's hard for me to say but like i felt like public opinion was much more that global warming was a bunch of nonsense yeah um than it is now where it's like still a, a lot of people think it's nonsense, but I think the the preponderance of people have have switched over and said, "Nah, nah, it's actually something happening." Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you want to? What What else you got? Oh, I couldn't help but notice everybody's tans in this movie. Like everyone I is like deeply tanned, and I don't know yeah. if they sought out actors. I don't think of Kevin Costner as a guy with a deep tan. Uh, I, I think of him kind of the opposite, actually. So, did they have him tan for this? Did they spray tan everyone? I, Dennis no, Hopper man, too. I, is very tan. I hard disagree. Every film I've ever seen him in, he's sporting a glowing bronze tan. Really? Okay. Oh I'm, yeah. Maybe I'm yeah, not yeah, yeah. enough Kevin Costner fan. To, he's, he's got kind of got a weather beat. skin. But he does. He's got like everyone looks like they got sunburnt cheeks and like wind burnt, water burnt, uh, sunburnt faces. Like yeah. that felt pretty right to me. Yeah, yeah, it's part of that that really good art direction. Um, mm-hmm. And then. Just just a piece of meta since we've talked about Star Wars a couple of times now in this movie. Did you notice that when you get the overhead shot of the Atoll that it is shaped like the Millennium Falcon? No, like I did not. Got the, the two things kind of jutting out in the front and the, the uh-huh, rounded structure uh-huh. and then maybe like a slight a flat spot in the back. It's I, I think that was intentional, but I don't know why. That's pretty cool. So playing homage to like you know like that's that's um i don't know maybe it's a star log thing where it's like you want to get uh you want to get positive press in the nerd in the nerd press you lean in and put a star wars reference so that uh, everyone writes about it and gets people all hyped up in star log and fangoria um but yeah i don't know it's like i i would be very interested to see a remake of Waterworld because again i think it's a really cool idea um and it is a neat concept and the world building and art design are spot on. And with now modern digital effects, you could do this for so much cheaper. And really, if you just recast and re and, and rewrote the characters where he's not as big of an ad, he's more of a Han Solo type 
Uh, he's not as big of an asshole. The the the, the he's more charmed by the because there's like also like I don't understand why he turned around on these people. Mm-hmm. There was nothing like oh you can't swim. Well, I'll teach you how to swim, and that's going to turn everything around. And that's what made Gene Triplehorn's character start to be attracted to him and see him not as a threat. Like, but that came essentially out of nowhere. Like they never stopped antagonizing and pissing him off and and wrecking things. And in return, he became ever more capricious and violent towards them. Right. Um, until he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slight yeah. the, the the haircutting scene just so bizarre. What mm-hmm. the fuck? So weird. Kevin Costner uh, was like, else? no one on this set is gonna have better hair than me. You know what? I noticed that. Like, no one on this, <laughs> no one in this production has good hair. No right. one. No. Like, it's all you know. That's fine. Kind of like a Mad Max thing. Like, no one's got product or whatever. But like, everyone's hair is a complete disaster. The costumes are cool, but the the hair is just all like blown out and frizz. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I maybe that's what they did. The whole hundred sixty day shoot. No one is allowed to use fresh water or shampoo. It's just uh-huh. everybody's salt crusted and briny, <laughs> like a yeah. pickle. They're we all like a pickle. Authentic, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Damn straight. Uh, we're going to keep it, speaking of briny, keeping of uh, ocean theme, that we're going to keep it that way because uh, we're going to see The Hunt for Red October, one of my all-time favorite movies based on one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, I'm really excited to revisit. I haven't seen it in probably a decade, um, but I'm going to strongly suspect that it, ha- that it holds up. If you've never seen this movie, I, I really recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a taut political thriller. Um, it's got a lot of cool action scenes. It stars... Um, a very young Alec Baldwin and a really uh, like his, at his height of People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, Sean Connery. Um, it's a really good movie, and I'm really excited to watch it next week. That's what we'll be doing next week um, on Bald Move Prestige. And until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.